All right. Well, let's, um, we'll come back to our seats and prepare to spend some time in God's Word. If, um, if you're new with us, um, we have just started a summer series. We finished our uh, year and plus many months of, of Hebrews, and now we're, we started a summer series, Foundations of the Faith. And last week, um, an introduction to the Bible was, uh, was given. And um, we're moving on uh, uh, to uh, look at uh, how to know the Bible today. But uh, as if you were here last week, we had a packed weekend. We had a pastor from the Czech Republic here. We had communion. Um, and so I couldn't get through everything that I wanted to. So I'm going to tag it on at the beginning here. But a brief review, if you missed last week, we really only looked at two main points. The first being that the Bible is the revelation of God. For, God, for man to know anything about God, God has to reveal himself to man. We cannot know God on, on our own. There's no way to do that. Um, he must reveal himself to us, and he's done that in a general way through creation, but he has done that in a special way uh, through the Bible. That is the special revelation of God. And as you read the Bible, you see all the many ways that he has done that uh, through theophanies, appearances uh, to men in Scripture, through dreams and visions, through miracles and signs and wonders, uh, through, the, through the voice of the prophets, and then certainly in the New Testament through the manifestation of his son, Jesus Christ. And so this, this word of God, this, this Bible is, is certainly a special thing. It's the special revelation of, of everything that, well, we need to know about God. And because the Bible is the uh, written revelation of him, then we must understand something that it, every word in it is very important because every word in it is the word of God, which was the second point. The Bible is the word of God. Yes, it was, it was penned by men, but God inspired it himself. We looked at that word inspiration in 2 Timothy 3, and we saw that, that it, is, it means God breathed, that every word was literally breathed out onto the page, pages of scriptures. The confusing thing is, well, how did that happen if God used men to, to write it? And we looked at 2 Peter 1, and we, we saw that that holy men of God were, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This idea of being conveyed or brought forth or brought along by the Holy Spirit. God did that in a miraculous way. It, it's a miracle. They still maintain their own personalities. They, they contribute their own insights. But every word is the word of God. And so the Bible itself is, is certainly a miraculous thing. And what we end up with are 66 books of the Bible. Now, what I wanted to touch on last week and I didn't get to uh, before we go to our subject today, is, is how did we end up with compiling these uh, 66 books? Who determined what books belonged in the Bible? Because as you probably are aware, there's other things that have been uh, written. Um, and so this is known as the canonization of the Bible. And when you use the word canon, you're just really, it's a Greek word that means rule. It's the rule of what books belong in uh, uh, the Bible. And um, Really, um, the question is always, well, who determined that? Who determined the rule or the canon of what books should belong in the Bible? Now, one thing you have to remember is if we believe that God inspired men to write his word, he superintended the writing of his word, then we also must believe that God preserved and collected the very word that he inspired. I don't know why that's a stumbling block for us, but it is sometimes for people. God has got to sovereignly, if he's had it written, also collected and preserved it. And so the church in no way, in no way, determined the canon. God did. God determined the canon, if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture. 
The church only recognized and received what God had inspired. Does that make sense? And so, yes, there was a council that met. It was the Council of Nicaea. And yes, they met to look at this collection of books, but they only looked at this not to determine the canon, but to universalize it. It was from that point that people felt comfortable to say, okay, so the, this is the word of God. Now, if you're familiar with the Roman Catholic Bible, you'll know that there are extra books in their Bibles. And so one of the questions that we often get is, well, how do we know if it's God's written word that we have all the words God wrote down? Maybe we're missing out on something. And so we should read those books as well. And so I just wanted to take a moment to, to talk about that. Uh, because I think it's important that it, that collection of books is called the Apocrypha. It just means hidden. Um, and I think we can give some reasons here as why we can trust that uh, everything God said is in our Bibles that we have uh, today. We have all that he wants us to know. And at the same time, I'll address the Apocrypha. One of them is the main point I made last week. We have the testimony of the Holy Spirit himself that this is the authority. This is authoritative. Um, we covered it in great detail last week. The Apocrypha does not claim the same thing, nor can it. It does not claim to be inspired as God's holy word does, uh, nor does it demonstrate itself to be so. I have an Apocrypha on the shelf. I have looked at it. It certainly does not. I'll give you an example. An Ecclesiasticus actually claims to be uninspired. And I'll give you a quote from it. It says, Ye are intended, therefore, to read with favor and attention and to pardon us if any parts of what we have labored to interpret we may seem to fail in some phrases. Right? We get some of this wrong. I hope you pardon us. All right, that's what Ecclesiastes, or Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, um, says. Well, you, you compare that to Scripture in Proverbs 35. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is pure. There's no, no part of God's word that is going to fail in some way, that we're going to go, oh, oh, God got that bit wrong, but he got the rest wrong. You won't find that in the Bible. You'll find that in the Apocrypha. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Everything God says has come to pass, will come to pass, or is true and truth itself. And the reason, there are many reasons why the uh, Apocrypha is uninspired. There are all also historical inaccuracies. You'll find King David alive at the same time, uh, sorry, uh, not King David, but Tobias, Tobit, alive at the same time as King David and during the um, uh, Assyrian uh, exile, which is a 200-year difference. You can't be alive at both times. But you contrast with the Bible, and it's historically accurate all the time. It gets the dates right, gets the places right, gets the times right. I remember for years and years and years, skeptics criticized the Bible because it claimed there was this Hittite civilization. What are you talking about? There's no such thing as a Hittite civilization. And then lo and behold, what does archaeologists discover? A Hittite civilization. You can go now and see all the ruins of this great, uh, massive Hittite uh, city. Uh, and then you can go in the museums and look at the writings as well. And so certainly they had to backpedal on that. I'll give you a more recent one. Um, the, the Bible was criticized for Jesus healing a blind man and sending him to the pool of Siloam to wash off right, the mud. And, and, and there was no pool of Siloam. There was no pool outside the walls of Jerusalem. And then in 2004, they're excavating to put a, a pipe in and they see some steps there. And so they call some um, archaeologists to dig the steps. They lead down to, what do they discover? A pool outside the wall of Jerusalem. Today, if you go there, you'll see it labeled as the Pool of Siloam. That was 2004. So listen, the Bible gets these things right all the time. Apocrypha has doctrinal errors as well. Two Maccabees, 
um, has them making prayers for people in purgatory. They made reconciliation for the dead that they might be delivered from sin. Contrast that with the Bible. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. It's doctrinally incorrect. You go to the wisdom of Solomon, it teaches that there's a pre-existence of the soul and reincarnation, that you can uh, atone for sin by the giving of alms. These things are not doctrinally correct, and so it cannot be inspired. There are moral contradictions uh, in 2 Maccabees as well. It makes suicide to be an honorable uh, thing. You have Tobias has an angel instructing a young man on how to make a magic potion to drive demons away. These things are morally wrong as well. So the Apocrypha does not have the authority that the Bible has. It contains too many inaccuracies. Another point I'd like to make is that Christ validated the Old Testament as Scripture. He said it was. We looked last week at Matthew 4.4. 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He validates that as Scripture. In the New Testament, in Luke 24.44, this, this is what he said. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. That's the whole Old Testament. Jesus said all those things are going to be fulfilled. Why? Because they're the words of God. Every word of God is true. And he, all, not only that, he says it's all about me, all about it, uh, Jesus, and that is, that is true. You have the New Testament calling itself scripture. Peter looks at Paul's writings and says, that's scripture. Um, Paul looks at the gospels and says, that's scripture. But the Apocrypha is never validated as scripture by Christ, and it's never validated as scripture by anyone in the New Testament. The Jews also never recognized the Apocrypha as scripture. No Jewish person did. Also, the church council um, never recognized it as scripture. It was only added to the canon by the Roman Catholic Church after the Protestant Reformation, which is a long time later. So I think we can be assured that today we have the words that God wanted us to have. God collected them. He preserved them for us if we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Remember Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And so Christians, we, we can believe the Bible. It's the revelation of God. It's the word of God. And, and um, I think the primary reason we need to believe is because what it tells us about salvation. Remember, we said we can know about God in a general way through creation, but you can't know about the gospel. You can't know salvation unless you have special revelation. And 2 Timothy 3.15 says that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And that is, that is the key. Now, that was the brief um, bit I wanted to add from last week. Now, it is good to know that much. It is good to read the Word of God and come to an understanding of salvation. But I think a lot of Christians are just content with that. Uh, I, I, they believe in God. Uh, they believe in the Bible. That is His Word. They believe the gospel, but they don't know anything beyond that. And I think that's sad. I think we need to know more than that. And that's the subject of today. Today is how to know the Bible, how to know it. Because these are divine words. This is written by God himself. And so can man know it? Well, can't man can know it. We looked at clarity of scripture last week. It's written for the simple-minded right here, poster child, so it, you can understand it. So it's, it's clear. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this whole summer series, this is not gonna, like a sermon series like you're used to. This is more like a clinic 
And today is gonna be that. And if you're taking notes, choose what you wanna take notes on because I'm flying through some things. I would recommend just note the scripture. Don't write it, you won't have time. Um, and I have a lot of lists for you, five reasons for that, 10 reasons, so those kind of things, because some of those things are very, very practical things that I think the church needs to know to, 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 to know the Bible. The first question you ask when you, okay, how to know the Bible is why? Why do I need to know the Bible? Isn't the gospel enough? Now, there are a lot of reasons I give you in scripture. We'd be here till next week. I just chose five, okay? I'm just going to give you five reasons why you should know the Bible. And the first is this, to be approved by God. Now, when I say that, to be approved by God, I'm not referring to salvation because that's not approval by God. Uh, salvation doesn't come to us because, because God approves of us. He doesn't look at us and say, oh, that guy deserves uh, salvation. We're wretched sinners. Salvation comes by grace through faith. But in that process, I receive Christ's sanctification, his righteousness. It's not my own. God's approval has to do with my role as a worker. Look at 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God approves of workers who are diligent at working for him. Diligent in, in what? Rightly dividing the word of truth. That means cutting it straight. That, these are people who know God's word. We must be diligent in knowing his word. We're, we're approved by him if we do. Listen, sons naturally desire the approvals of their fathers, don't they? They want to make their father happy. They want to be uh, approved by him. We are sons of God. And we should desire his same approval from our Heavenly Father. You just want me to know your word? You want, just want me to know what you said? Well, I'll study that. That's a good thing. That's all he's asking, to be approved by God. Number two, to grow. You won't grow unless you read his word. You, you'll know something and you'll know some basic things, but you won't ever grow unless you read his word. And 1 Peter 2, 2 says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Babies desire milk and they need milk or they'll die or they won't grow uh, without that milk. We're told that we should have the same desire as a baby for the pure milk because that will sustain us. We will grow uh, from that and we're commanded to grow. In Colossians 2 verses 6 to 7, it says this, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith have you been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving that word built up means to build upon yes salvation is great we must have salvation we must know the gospel but but we must build upon that that is the foundation and we build upon that otherwise here's the problem we're really just useless a baby they're cute but they can't do a whole lot Let's, let's be honest. You can't, they can't help out with the laundry. They can't, I mean, you're doing the laundry. <laughs> They're useless. And let me tell you, there are a whole lot of useless Christians around today because they just have not grown because they don't know the word. You must know the word to grow. Number three, you also need to know it to defeat sin. You won't do it on your own power. You won't do it by committing, oh, this time for real, I'm going to do it. I'm going to just push that stuff aside because what happens? You're just leaving a void open. Something must replace the sin. Something must replace those desires and lusts. And that is God's word. And Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word must go in so that sin might go out. 
Yeah, you might be successful for a little while, but if you don't commit to studying his word, you won't defeat sin. It'll come right back in your life and it will reign. God's word has the ability to help us defeat sin. Sometimes, and I remember times that we, people didn't even know they were in sin until they heard God's word proclaim it. They went, oh, I didn't even realize that. And that's, that's what God's word does. It helps us live the moral kind of lifestyle he desires to live that we might be shining lights for him, that we might look different than the world. And listen, when you're tempted in a particular area as well, the more word you hide in your heart, the more scripture comes to mind when you're tempted to do that. You go, oh, God just keeps reminding me of these things. I, I shouldn't go that direction. In 1 John 2, 14, it says this, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. The word of God abides in them. Abiding word of God gives victory over the wicked one. You think of Ephesians 6 and the armor of God, right? All these pieces of armor that you can put on to help, uh, to help stand against the wiles of the devil. One of those pieces is the sword of the Spirit. That's the word of God. You must be armed with his word. And in James chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and, and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And there's that picture again. You must lay aside sin, yes, but something must replace it. Implanted word. Plant the word of God right in your heart. You must know the word if you hope to defeat sin. A fourth one is to prepare us for service. We don't want to be the useless Christians, right? We want to be Christians who know how to serve. We must be able to serve. And 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, it says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you carefully followed. Minister here simply means servant. We're all servants. We're all servants of Christ Jesus. But look at what describes a servant here. He is nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. We need to know God's word if we have any hope of being of service to our Lord. I think of things like discipleship. If you're discipling someone, but you don't know the Bible, how on earth are you going to disciple them? What are you going to tell them? Just some fun stories, your testimony for the umpteenth time? No, you've got to have something to impart to them. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, it says, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You've got to be able to take it, understand it, and then teach others also. You think about evangelism, so important for evangelism. Otherwise, how will you be able to uh, give a reason for the hope that is within you? So important to know God's word because God wants to use you. It's to prepare us for service. And let me give you a fifth one. It is to know God's will. Many times that's a big question. Oh, I just wish I knew God's will. Well, God's will is very clearly revealed in his word. And so you must read his word and his will is very clear. And we'll have a whole session on God's will. I think it's the last one that closes this, the last week of August. But um, let me just briefly give you a verse here, Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You want wisdom, you need his word. You want to know the will of the Lord, you need his word. And so those are just five I picked, five reasons to know the Bible. If you're sitting here to get, well, I'm just fine where I am. I don't need, I just give you five. There's a lot more uh, than that. It shows reverence uh, for God. And you reread his word, just does, doesn't it bring you to a place where like, oh, 
God is so good, so amazing. You, you, have, to, you have to read his word. You have to be in it, uh, Christian. So I just want to start it with that. Let me, let me jump into the next question. That was why, how to know the Bible, which is really the whole uh, subject. And like I said, this is going to be more clinical here. Um, the first step really is pretty basic. You need to read it. Yep, you need to read it. And I've already lost people. Oh, because you have the excuses, right? Well, I really uh, struggle with reading. Um, I, I have a short attention span. I've heard them all, right? I, 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 it's hard to understand. I just can't understand a word. Listen, do whatever you need. Learn to read. Get it on audio. Get it on video. You have to have his word going in. There is no other way. And whatever excuse you give to God is not enough, okay? It's his word. He's given you his word. The God that reigns in heaven and earth, he, he has spoken. Don't you want to know what he says? You must have his word. I think a lot of times you hear people say, well, there's just so many difficult things to understand. One of the, the common ones is the book of Revelation. I don't even touch the book of Revelation. It's just too difficult, confusing. Uh, it's all over the place. Um, and so it's hard to understand, so I don't read it. Revelation 1.3, let me just show you this verse, says this, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For the time is near. Revelation the one we commonly say is the most difficult to say, is the only one that comes with a blessing if you read it, <laughs> which means you should be able to understand it because God blesses you by reading it. You've got to read his word. Paul asked Timothy to give his attention to a couple of things. And in 1 Timothy 4, 13, he says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Make sure you're reading the scripture, young Timothy, young pastor. You make sure you Read. So reading is important. That's why we put out Bible reading plans at the first of every year. We put out all kinds this year. You want to read through the, you know, chronologically. Do you want to read in order of, uh, you, you know, you want a half a year thing, you want a whole year. We just put, we're putting out things to help people read. But here's the thing I do hear a lot of times, and I want to address it, is that, oh, yeah, but I read a passage, um, and I tick off in my little box, and I go to the next one. I haven't understood that one, so I, okay, I read the next one. I haven't understood that one, so I took that. But before you know it, I've read the whole book. I haven't understood any of it. Because I just, I just, I'm not retaining it. Here might be a, a good suggestion for you: repetitive reading. I would, if you struggle that way, uh, read repetitively. Pick a short book. Read First John, okay? And what you do is you take those five chapters, you read them every single day, the same five, because it take you 20 minutes. Same time, you read all of them for a month straight. You know what's going to happen after 30 days? You're going to know First John, right? You're going to know it. And when people say, "Oh, where's that part where it talks about, you know," um, Attest the spirits. Oh, so First John chapter four. I know because I read it. I read it for thirty days straight. You're gonna know it, right? And then go to a longer book. Go to a longer book and read two chapters. Read, read. You know, one, two. Read three and four. Read five and six. And you go back and you do it over again. Maybe repetitive reading is for you. Whatever works for you, get in and read the Bible. But you must have a plan. Don't go. Well, what's the Lord gonna tell me today? And just open it up. That's that is no plan. That's a plan to fail. Let me tell you that. There's a plan. It's just not gonna work. Have a plan, some plan. The other thing is have a place. Have a place. Where is it that you're going to do that, right? Do you have a, a special chair? Do you have a place in your room? Time, place, plan. You need those things if you're going to be committed to reading the Word. Now, that's a very basic one. Reading is obviously necessary. But here's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, studying it. Most people, uh, if we're honest, probably just reading is enough. And I'll get through and I'll take my my box is off and I'll go. And if you're doing that much, then great. I'm glad you, you are. And you should keep that up. You really should. 
but you must study it. I will tell you, when I first began to really grow in the Lord was when I started studying the Word. My pastor gave me a study guide on Romans. He said, I just want you to go, not just read Romans, I want you to study it. And I began to grow like mad because of what the Lord was showing me. Now, when we consider Bible study, we must understand that there is a process to this. And let me tell you, this is very important. So I do hope you listen up on this. You cannot haphazardly jump around in Scripture interpreting everything without a process because the process involves certain rules. Though The name for these rules is called hermeneutics. Now, maybe you've heard me use that. That just means a Bible study process. If you have come to certain theological conclusions, but you have no hermeneutic, I don't want to hear it because you're wrong. Uh, and that sounds severe, but you have no process. You're just jumping through Scripture. You must have a proper hermeneutic. Now, as we discussed last week in, in detail, every word in the Bible is the Word of God. Yeah. Therefore, the object of hermeneutics, the object of that is to let the Word of God speak for itself, not uh, to, to read something into the text. I don't want to read what I want to read. I want to read what God meant, what he wrote. What we think, what we feel, those kind of things are, should be separated. Now, it's also important to remember that the Bible is a book it's written many centuries ago. You're naturally going to have some bridge, bridges to build over these gaps. One of the gaps is a language gap, obviously. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. Um, so often understanding the meaning of a word, the meaning of a phrase is important, which is why many times you see me putting up a Greek word up there and breaking that down. You must have a proper uh, understanding of words if you want a proper interpretation. You have a culture gap. Boy, do you have a culture gap. We really can't just explain away cultural differences um, to um, sort of avoid difficult passages. You have to realize that Scripture must be read and understood in the context of the culture in which it was written. So when you read Acts and you read Epistles, you've got to think about the Greek and Roman culture. You have to understand that. Yeah. When you read the, 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 uh, the Gospels, you've got to understand the Jewish culture. Um, even Hebrews, we went quite a bit into the Jewish uh, uh, culture. There's a geography gap. I mean, we, we read about places and, you know, you've never been, and we're trying to understand, can we pronounce these names, right? You, but listen, the Bible came to alive, more alive to me when I went to Israel, and I started seeing these places for real. You need a tool to help you. You need a good Bible atlas or something like that that will help uh, bridge that gap. And also, we have a history gap because it was written so long ago, and you have historical figures and historical places and events, and a good knowledge of history helps. So those are some gaps you're coming to already when you come to Scripture. And we're going to get to, I have some tools to help you with those things. But I want to begin with some errors to avoid, okay? Errors to avoid. You want to avoid self-drawn conclusions. Those are conclusions that we reach at the price of proper interpretation. Okay, that, that's just something comes, you don't make the Bible say what you want to say. You let God say what he intended to say. Um, and, and if it's not looking like that, it's a self-drawn conclusion. And again, we're going to look in a bit at how you can make sure you're getting the right interpretation. But these are things to avoid. You also want to avoid superficial interpretation. I hear a lot of this kind of language today. Oh, to me, to me, this passage means, or, oh, I really feel it saying wrong, okay? It's not about what you feel or to me what this means. It's, it's if you fail to consider the language, the culture, the geography, the history, all those things, uh, you're going to interpret uh, Scripture superficially. You're going to miss the intended meaning. And you also want to avoid spiritualizing the passage. We understand it in its normal, literal, historical, grammatical sense. 
So the way to uh, avoid these errors is to study your Bible using uh, basic principles. And I'm going to give you those basic principles today. So these are principles to understand. So here's another list for you, okay? Now, we have said this a lot, um, and I have had conversations with people a little bit confused by it. So don't worry. I'm going to break it down further for you further on. But the first principle is the literal principle. We should seek to understand Scripture in its literal, normal, natural sense. And I'm going to give you an example by taking you to Revelation 7, if you'll turn there. But people tell me, oh, you can't understand Revelation. It's all out of order. It's all jumbled up. There's just too many pictures and weird things happening. I can't understand this. And so you go to Revelation 7, and just take a look at verse um, 4. It's talking about a number of people that were sealed. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. So there's a specific number. Of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And now we start to list off these tribes. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. And on and on and on it goes. It's very specific, very, very literal. 12,000 of the tribes of Israel sealed, 144,000 total. Now, this should be taken literally. Why? Because of chapter 6. The first place you go to is context. You read chapter 6, it's a pivotal chapter. It introduces the beginning of the judgment of God Almighty upon this earth. Uh, You look at thunderstorms and floods and earthquakes and tsunamis and those things, you ain't seen nothing. The judgment of God, it's cataclysmic what is happening. And so chapter 6 ends with this statement, which is a, a fair statement. Who is able to stand? I mean, if this is God judging the earth, who's going to survive is what the question is. Who is able to stand? So chapter 7, then, is not uh, uh, continuing on in the action or the time. It's a parenthetical chapter. That means it pauses to address the question that's just been asked. Who is able to stand? I'll tell you who is able to stand. I'm going to give you. It's 12,000 of each tribe of Israel. I'm going to seal them, and they will stand through the tribulation. So... It stops the action because it answers the question. When you don't read this literally, you really start to get lost, and you really start to have to do a lot of Houdini stuff to make this all make sense. You can't fit the church in here, uh, insert figurative language here when there isn't any. Now, I'll talk again about the difference between literal and figurative language in the interpretation section, but as a rule of thumb, which is figurative language, (laughs) When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense lest you end up with nonsense, okay? That's what you want to... Uh, looking for the plain sense of Scripture. What is it obviously trying to say? That's a literal principle. Historical principle is point two. Now, here we're asking what the text meant to the people to whom it was written in the first place, not what it means to me. What did it mean to them? What was the purpose? This is going to give us the proper contextual understanding of the original intent of the passage. You think back to Genesis 12 and God, that it's the covenant with Abraham. And we know in the covenant that they're going to be a great nation. Abraham's descendants are going to possess a geographical territory. And in chapter 15, you find it's very specific. Abraham's descendants will be a source of worldwide blessing. And then God repeats those promises to Isaac and to uh, Jacob. So very specific um, promise uh, to them. So God's people, what would they be expecting then? Well, they'd be expecting because it's a covenant, those things to be given to them. The promise, as you read Scripture, does continue throughout Scripture. You come to Psalm 105, verses 8 to 11, it says this, He remembers His covenant forever, the word which He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant 
which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for his statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. And it doesn't stop there. It goes on into the prophets. In Ezekiel 28, 25, it says, Thus says the Lord God, When I have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, and am hallowed, hallowed in them in the sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. You find a lot more. Oh, it's when he brings them back because they're scattered. He brings them back, and then he's going to give them the land, but also when they hallow him in the sight of the Gentiles, which they don't do right now. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Amos and Zechariah all say the same thing. That is historical. You must then look at what well, God's people then must be waiting for this covenant to be fulfilled. There's a grammatical principle, which is a little bit more tricky. It requires that we do understand basic grammatical structure uh, of each of the sentences in, in the original language. That's helpful to you. And a fourth principle is the synthesis principle. And that is this, scripture must be compared with scripture to get the full meaning. It must synthesize as a whole. If we arrive at a conclusion that contradicts a truth that's taught elsewhere in scripture, then our interpretation cannot be correct. We have chosen one truth over and above another truth of God. But all truth, it's all truth. So you can't pick which one. It must synthesize. So those are some starting principles when you begin studying. So let me give you the steps for studying. Hopefully you're hanging on still. Step one is preparation. To prepare, honestly, what you need to do, you just need to pray. You, not just even when you study, when you read. You should pick up that Bible and realize, oh, boy, I'm a, I'm a wretched sinner. I was pretty awful last night. I was pretty awful the day before. I probably need to confess my sins to Almighty God before I come to seek his word and his guidance. That passage about um, you know, being babes and desiring the pure milk of the word. It begins with saying, but lay aside all filthiness, lay aside all malice and deceit. Lay those things aside, confess those things to him so that you might have a quality time with him, a deep communion with God. That's preparation. You also should pray for wisdom and understanding. Again, we're trying to understand uh, God in this. And Paul prayed for for people that they would have that kind of wisdom and spiritual understanding, you should pray uh, for the same. So step one is obvious. Just prepare. Prepare your heart to meet with God. Step two is observation. Now, this is the step where you start asking questions about what you're reading. You've read it, okay? You've prayed. You've read it. And now you've read it. Okay, so who, who's in this passage? What, what's happening? Where is it? When is it? What's taking place? What do I see? It's the observation uh, things, things you're trying to observe. And here's things that I observe often I'm looking for. I'm looking for key or repeated words or phrases. I'm looking for key subjects uh, or, or people or topics that are coming uh, through the passage. I'm looking for commands uh, or warnings. I'm looking for comparisons, things that are similar or things that are different or comparisons happening in this section. Many times you might see questions and answers being given. Paul does that a lot. He asks a question, gives an answer. But also, you're looking for unusual or odd things. Unusual and odd phrases are of particular importance, specifically when we get to figurative language. It's very important. So when you're observing, you're looking for those things. What's sticking out to you? Ask some questions and just note some things. So if you look at my Bible, I've got things circled. I've got things underlined. And some people are paper lovers, and so they don't touch that. Whatever you, you know, it's okay. I think it's just, it's okay to highlight God's word. 
I think he, he understands that we're just trying to understand him more. Um, and you're not also, I've heard this, oh, but that, that's showing God that that part's more important than the rest. No, no, that's just helping my simple mind track. So I, I highlight, I underline, I do those things. But now today I can tell you where things are visually in my mind because I remember, oh yeah, on the right-hand column down halfway, I got a highlight in the green. And it, you know, so you can, I can see those things. It's helped me because helped me I'm a visual person. But you are observing things and you're noting them down or, or making, making um, marks in your Bible or on something else. Okay, that's observation. Now here we get to the meat of it. Step three is interpretation. Now this is the most important part. Um, and I think the most important thing to understand regarding interpretation is this, that there's only one correct interpretation of Scripture. Only one. It's the author's originally intended meaning. It is not that there are many interpretations. That is common today, folks. A lot of people will tell you that. Oh, well, you can interpret one way and I can interpret, we can all learn from it. No, 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 no. There's one interpretation. It's what God meant. What does God want me to understand from this? There's many applications of that truth. Oh, we can apply his truth in many ways. There's only one correct interpretation. We're seeking to understand what God intended. Now, remember, this might seem like daunting. Oh, gosh, it's all on me. No, you all have been given something, haven't you? We've all been given something to help us understand the meaning of Scripture. I say something, it's a someone. It's the Holy Spirit, right? We have the Holy Spirit. He's to guide us into truth. And 1 John 2, 27 actually says this, but the anointing which you've received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you'll abide in him. Listen, if you were stranded on a desert island with only your Bible, you have a teacher, the Holy Spirit. Now, is it good to have other teachers in your life? Is it good to uh, sit and hear the word? Absolutely. Uh, I needed that help. We need that help. It's, it's important. But yes, you also, in your own private study, you have a teacher, the Holy Spirit. He will guide you, particularly if you've done proper preparation. When I pray, I go, Lord, help me. <laughs> I need your help. Now, when we seek to interpret, we need to ask interpretive questions. So now you're asking questions again. Well, what's the importance of that given word that I noted or that given phrase or those names or those titles or those dates? What, what, what's the meaning of that particular word? Why did the writer say this? What, what's the implication of that word or that phrase, especially if it's an odd, odd one? So those are the things you're starting to ask in interpretation, interpretive um, questions. Now, before you can determine the meaning of a particular word or phrase, I think you need to determine if the writer is speaking literally or figuratively. Now, I made a big deal about literal interpretation, but look at your Bible. It is literally chock full of figurative language, isn't it? It's chock full of figurative language. The wicked are like chaff, right? The, the man who's blessed and, and delights in his word, he's like a tree, right? Uh, You've got all kinds of, of things. The, Saul, uh, the bride in Song of Solomon calls her lover a gazelle. He's skipping along the mountains, <laughs> right? You, what do you, this is weird stuff. Jesus called Herod a fox. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He called James and John the sons of thunder. Revelation even gets more figurative. The one who sits on the throne, he looks like a sardius in stone in appearance. Uh, he sees a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. He sees a beast coming out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. I mean, what, what on earth? Well, that's all figurative language, and it's everywhere. It's everywhere in your Bible. So what rules then are there to guide us as to whether we interpret these odd expressions figuratively or uh, literally? I'm going to give you some of those today. I think these are going to be some of the most helpful things. Ten principles that will help you, uh, well, I say for figuring out the figurative. And these aren't mine. I got them in one of the first books I ever used to study the Bible, Living by the Book by the uh, 
Howard Hendricks and William Hendricks. Such a good book. Um, but those principles are, are in there. Because some of the conversations I've come up with, we say, oh, we, we interpret it literally. I understand people come back and say, oh, okay, so we, we sit under the shelter of his wings, so God has feathers. Well, we need to have some sanctified common sense. Let's start there, okay? Common sense, people. We're looking for when do we look at the figurative language? When do we note it? So the first is this, number one, always use the literal sense unless there's some good reason not to. You're always going to look at it literally unless you have a very good reason not to. You should never, ever, ever try to spiritualize the text in such a way as to alter the obvious and clear meaning. So the question is, okay, so then when do I use the figurative sense? These other nine are going to answer that question. You're going to use the figurative sense when, number two, the passage tells you to do so. You say, wait, there's a passage in the Bible says, now I'm speaking figuratively. Well, no, it doesn't do that. But dreams and visions do. When you come to a passage of scripture, it says, and then I had a vision, you should expect to see figurative language. Joseph talks about these stalks bowing down to him, the sun and moon and stars bowing down. Even the people who heard those dreams understood the figurative language. Oh, you think we're going to bow down and worship you? It's figurative. Pharaoh's dreams, figurative. He interpreted what those meant. They meant a famine was coming. Daniel's prophetic visions in chapters 7 to 12 there, all figurative language in there. When you're coming to dreams and visions, the passage is telling you you're going to expect some figurative language here. That's an obvious one. But number three is this. If a literal meaning is impossible or absurd, you're going to use the figurative, okay? If the literal is literally impossible, again, use the common sense. God is not trying to confuse us. He's not trying to keep us in the dark and, and be mysterious and difficult to understand. Remember the clarity of scripture. He wants us to know his word. So in uh, Revelation 1, 16, and Jesus makes his appearance and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Do we really believe that Jesus walks around with a giant sword hanging out of his mouth? Right? That's, that's absurd, right? That's what I'm saying. It's, it's not the case. So when we say you take it literally, this is a figurative use of Jesus. What it should compel you to do is do a word study on sword. What you should do is like, well, what does he mean by sword? And when you do, you realize it's not the same sword of Hebrews 4.12, the double-edged sword that's, that pierces to division of soul and spirit. It's actually a different sword. Okay, it's a longer sword. It's the size of a javelin. And when you look at it and you look at the context, this is probably figurative of the Lord's judicial utterances. He's coming to judge in Revelation. So it's a figurative, symbolic meaning there. But we're not to go into the absurd. If you went literally, that would be absurd. And God is not. Number four, if a literal meaning would involve something immoral. Okay, if you take it literally and it's immoral, then it's probably figurative. Jesus said in one of his speeches to them, you need to eat my flesh, you need to drink my blood, and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, you know, you'll have eternal life. And even those that heard them said, this is a hard saying. I don't even understand this. They were still struggling with the figurative language Jesus was actually using there. Um, is God telling us to become cannibals? No, that would be an immoral thing. So we understand that there's figurative language here. Remember this, God ne never violates his character. Okay? His word is consistent. It's true. It's consistent with his character in every way. So if you're coming out with an interpretation that violates who God is, you're wrong. Now, that's clearly figurative speech there. Number five, you use figurative speech if the expression is an obvious 
figure of speech. Now, I wish I had time. I could give you just a long list of figures of speech in the Bible, but there's so many figures of speech being, being used in there, and we use them today as well, okay? Um, but you find anthropomorphisms where we attribute human features to, to God. You find apostrophes in Scripture where we address a thing as if it were a person. Um, oh, death, where is your sting? Well, well, no one's talking to death. There isn't a death character, but that's, that's a, a figure of speech. There's euphemisms, which many times they're using less offensive expressions to keep away from saying the more offensive expressions. Many times when they speak of death, that person fell asleep or was gathered to his people. Or if a man went into the tent and he knew his wife, yeah. <laughs> that means something else as well. Those are euphemisms. There are idioms and similes and metaphors and a lot more things in there. And so you have to, and, and you know, there's a great list in this book, by the way, of, of those types of things if you're just unfamiliar with the figures of speech in Scripture. If there's an obvious figure of speech, then you know that you're, you're, you're looking at some figurative language uh, here. When Isaiah says the moon will be abashed and the sun will be ashamed, he's using personification. Um, human characteristics being ascribed to uh, an object. Uh, I ran into a woman when I was in the States in March, I think I might have mentioned this, um, who um, took issue with the fact that it said God is man because of the issue of people trying to regender God. Um, he's not a man, sorry. He, he, right? We can't be saying she. And she said, well, but I found wisdom is a woman and God is wisdom and therefore God can be a woman. So what she had done is seen the personification of wisdom literature as wisdom being personified as a woman, female characteristics, taken that and applied that to God. And I didn't have the time to, to sit there and discuss her hermeneutical problem there, <laughs> but that's what it was. She clearly had none. Um, bad hermeneutics there. So you want to um, recognize figures of speech, things like personification. Number six, if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the context and scope of the passage, so the exact passage that you're, you're in. So you read um, Revelation 5, and you're in this wonderful throne room of God, and then in walks this lion, is there a lion in there? The lion of the tribe of Judah. There's a lion in the throne room. Well, obviously, you do a word study on the lion. You find out that in Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, and he's using figurative language with every single one of them. And he's saying Issachar is a strong donkey. Dan is a serpent. Naphtali is a doe. Benjamin's a ravenous wolf. Judah is a lion's whelp. And then he goes on to describe that, and the scepter will not depart from Judah. And we come to find out that, that the, the kingly line, the reign of David, and ultimately the ultimate David, Jesus Christ, comes from Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, not a literal lion. And so obviously this is, um, if you were to say, take and put a lion in there, you're going to go contrary to the context and the scope of the passage. It's reaching all the way back to Genesis 49. You're going to use figurative language, number seven, if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the general character and style of the whole book. Is the book prophetic? Is the book poetic? If it's those things, you're going to see a lot of figurative language, and you need to be prepared for that. I mentioned um, Psalm 63 earlier about the shadow of your wings, right? God does not have feathers, and so, but when you read that, you you see the characteristics they're trying to imply. He's a, he's a watchful and protective father, much like a bird is over their children, covering them with their wings. That's the point. So that would fit, if you read that all, uh, the atmosphere and style of that psalm. That's what it's picturing God as. Number eight, if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the plan and purpose of the author. 
remember, we're trying to find out the author's original intent. So you look at Psalm 1, you see that a man's going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And most people will understand that that's figurative. We're speaking about spiritual health, um, stability, being planted in his word, delighting in his word. But then you get to verse 3, and then it goes all wrong. And whatever he does prosper. Therefore, or therefore, he guarantees me material wealth. And so we've gone wrong again. Some would interpret that to be the case. Well, you have to look at this. Does that fit the context or the purpose of the author? Does it? When you read all that, is he really concerned about people's financial well-being, or is he more concerned about their spiritual well-being? Do you see what I'm saying? So you want to use figurative, yes, when um, a literal one would go against the plan and purpose of the author. Number nine, use a figurative speech if a literal interpretation involves a contradiction of other scripture. This is key, remember, synthesis, let scripture interpret scripture. So you might come across paradoxes, you might come across tension, I won't say might, you will. There are many tensions in scripture, particularly around deep doctrines, but you're never going to find a contradiction. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says a crazy thing about a camel going through the eye of the needle, right? But he's talking about a rich man. It's easier for a camel to do that than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then that just confused everybody. Oh, then no one could get to heaven. And Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. Well, you could look at that and say, okay, I guess rich people can't uh, go to heaven. But if you read 1 Timothy 6, you see clearly that there are warnings about dangers uh, of wealth, but never do we see any statement that the wealthy cannot be saved. So you can't make a doctrine on that. That would contradict Scripture itself. And one final one, use figurative speech, number 10, if a literal interpretation would evolve a contradiction in doctrine. Very similar to the one I just mentioned. You don't want to be contrary to Scripture. You also don't want to be contrary to doctrine. I'll give you an example that I've heard before. It's 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. This passage says, Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So some has taken this to mean, if you're God's temple, um, but you destroy God's temple, then God's going to destroy you. And they take this, say, if Christian commits suicide, you lose your salvation. God will destroy you. But that would contradict doctrine for me. That would contradict the clear doctrine of eternal security that is taught all over Scripture. God will not destroy those he has redeemed. He has sealed them by the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our salvation, and no one can snatch them out of his hands. Again, using figurative language here, the context is the work of believers. They're building uh, a spiritual temple for the Lord. In addition to that, he says, and you're a temple, you're a temple as well. But if someone tries to infiltrate the church and destroy the spiritual temple, God's going to destroy him. So you have to look at uh, making sure that you're also not going to contradict a doctrine of Scripture if you take it literally. So those are just some 10 principles there for figuring out the figurative, and I hope that helps with this whole literal figurative thing. Yes, there's figurative language, and yes, you have to understand it's being used all over Scripture, but you have to see how that fits in with the original meaning of what is being described. Now, when you're doing interpretation and, and you're asking these interpretive questions, you're looking at the context, the verses before and after the passage, you're looking at definitions of words, uh, grammar, sentence structure, and other passages letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And for all of that, you need some Bible study tools. And I want to spend some time just showing you some, uh, some things. So you need Bible dictionaries to understand the meaning of words. Vine's expository dictionary is one of the most well-known. I don't even have a hard copy of that. I use the one online. Um, you can use them on Blue Letter Bible in different places. But you want a good uh, Bible dictionary that will give you the meaning of, of, of terms there. 
You also want a good uh, concordance. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Now this is Strong's exhaustive concordance. You in your Bibles, if you turn to the end of your Bible, you have a concordance in your Bible. So you can look up a word and find some verses that uh, have that same word, but it's not exhaustive. You might think of a word right now and look there, and it's not going to be in there. It just has some words. This is exhaustive, meaning think of any word that's in the Bible. It will show you where it is every place in the Bible. That's why it's like two font and, uh, and you know, super huge. Uh, these are all online, by the way, but I'm just showing you. I actually have a physical Strong's. They're Strong's, Young's, and Cruden's. You want, uh, you want a concordance? I'll show you where else um, those things, those words are being used, uh, and that helps you to um, uh, cross-reference, and that's very helpful. Um, remember, we're trying to bridge some gaps here, so Bible dictionaries and things like that help you uh, do that. Um, another thing, when you look at your Bible, you have a column, and many times it has a little letter and has some verses. What they're doing is cross-referencing for you, where maybe you might find that same kind of idea elsewhere in Scripture, but that's not exhaustive. Again, your, Bible, your, your Bibles would be like this. You'd be walking around with Bibles like this all the time if it was exhaustive, right? So that's why it's not made that way. I recommend this. This is called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. And what this does is it, is it does that. It cross-references with everywhere in the Bible. Again, it's super small font. I think it's even smaller than two font. Um, but it will show you everywhere where that's being, being used. It's a super help, helpful, handy, handy tool uh, to have to help you bridge those, those gaps. You're also going to want... Um, a Bible a handbook. This is really useful. Put one higher. This is called the Lion Handbook to the Bible. Useful in bridging the cultural gap, right? We're trying to understand culture. We don't quite know. They've got clay pots and things. And, and so this has got every book of the Bible, but it's got pictures of the kinds of flowers when you're talking about the Rose of Sharon. You've got um, the types of scrolls. You've got the types of lamps they would use. It's illustrative. And these things help you build that cultural gap. If you're trying to understand something and it's not quite ringing true, get yourself a tool that will help you uh, to, to do that. I don't have a ton. All my stuff fit in one box, basically. You want a Bible encyclopedia? A to Z encyclopedia, there you go. And so this, you could look up uh, Egypt and you could find out some facts about that. You could look up the books of the Bible like uh, Habakkuk and Zephaniah, and it has illustrations and different things that will help you in alphabetical, give you some ideas there. To help you bridge the geographical gap, you're going to want an atlas. So this is Oxford Bible Atlas, right? So you're going to want to look at some maps. You're going to want to get an idea of, of where these things are. Oh, there's Egypt. Oh, that's where it is. Those kind of things are helpful for you to have. Again, a lot of these things you can find online. You can just Google, you know, uh, show me the Jordan River, and you can find out a map of where that lands. But these, these are the kind of tools that help you. Remember, you're trying to bridge a gap into things that are difficult. So you want a Bible Atlas. And then you also want commentaries. Now, this is last, commentaries, okay? You get to commentaries. This is Matthew Henry's whole commentary of the Bible. Now, many people have, like, the whole volume thing. I've got a six-series set of Matthew Henry. This is all in one, and this is, like, zero font, I think. This is super small. So, um, this is, a, now, I don't use Matthew Henry a lot. He's quite old, um, and, again, those things are on there. Not that, because he, he's old, it's bad, it, it, but, but um, this, this one, um, I've got several that have multiple guys in there, is, is useful, but he, he's online. I'll tell you one that's really, I've found useful over the years, is Walford and Zuck, okay? The blue is the New Testament, the brown is the Old Testament. So in, in two volumes, you've got a commentary on all uh, the Bible. And again, these are just, you know, men who have done some of these steps before us, and they're helping us through some of these things, and commentaries are very helpful. If you don't have any of that, what I would suggest is starting with just a good study Bible. So you have a study Bible that has I thought I brought mine. Oh, I do. 
This is the uh, John MacArthur Study Bible. And a study Bible, I had to show this to someone before, so I'm going to make sure I show it so you understand. A study Bible has the Bible, and it has a thin line that goes across and the stuff underneath it. That's to, to show you that this is inspired, this is not. All right? Inspired, Word of God, not inspired, just the thoughts of men. But what it helps you to do is go, oh, you know, I don't quite understand what he said there. And then sometimes you got a little comment that might help you or a cross-reference. So I would say start with a study Bible. You don't have to go get all those things, but start. that's where I started. Just have a study Bible, and that will help you uh, quite a bit. But you need tools because we've got these, these gaps. But what you end up with when you interpret Scripture, if it contradicts anything else in Scripture, then you're, you're incorrect, and you've got to look at that again. So that's enough on interpretation. Let me go to the next step so we get through this. The next one is application. So this is when you are um, you know, saying, what effect does this, have, this truth have on my life? How do I apply this to me? And I just want to give you this. This is a lovely little tool to help you apply what you learned. It's called Specs. Okay, you put on the Specs for application, S-P-E-C-S. So these are little things you can just write and put on a note in your Bible. So when you get to the application part, you can ask yourself these questions. S is for sin to forsake. Is there any sin that I need to, in my life that I need to forsake that this scripture has brought to light? Is there um, a promise to claim? Maybe there's something I've been ignoring, some truth of scripture that I'd, I'd like to claim there. That is true. God is good all the time. Okay, so that's the P. Uh, or is there an example to follow? Maybe something really spoke to you about how that person uh, responded to what God did in their life as you're reading that. That's the E. The C is command to obey. Is there a command that has been issued there that you need to remind yourself about? And the S is stumbling block to avoid, right? A lot of times when you read scripture, you see where these people went wrong. You don't want to go down the same path. So you're able to just take these things and go, I don't want to make those same decisions. Specs is a really good application tool. I told you, I was trying to make this as, as practical as, as possible. So those are the, only the first two ways to know the Bible, to read it and study it. We've only gone through two. But I'll go through, through these last um, two really fast here, okay? The third one is to meditate on it. Yeah. Now listen, this is not emptying uh, of yourself like the Eastern religions and New Age and that and yoga. Uh, it's actually the opposite. It's about content. It's all about content. We're chewing on, we're digesting God's word, we're prayerfully reflecting upon the scripture with a view toward understanding and application. It's prayerful, prayerful thought of God's word so that we can conform our lives to its truth. So looking at Psalm 1, 1 to 2 again, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, this is meditation. He's meditating on it day and night. That can be done as you hear the word preached. That can be done as you're reading it, as you're studying it, as you're uh, praying about what you've read and uh, studied meditation. And there's obviously great benefits to scripture meditation, chief of which is blessed, right? Happy. That's what that means. Happy is the man. There's great happiness that comes from meditating on the truth of God's word. And Joshua 1.8 shows another benefit of scripture meditation. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. And for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So if you meditate on it, you'll be more likely to do all that's written in it, and you'll be more likely to be prosperous. That just means um, making wise decisions in your life. We often find ourselves going down the wrong path, not very prosperous, just because we're just missing out on his wisdom. We haven't meditated on it enough. Meditation is a very important one. And the last one, letter D, is memorize it. God commanded Israel 
to remember his word. You need to remember my word. How did he tell them to do that? Deuteronomy 11:18. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. They are to have it in them. It's important. It's important to have it hidden in your heart, to memorize it. It's, it's good for obedience and for right, for right living, as I mentioned earlier, to defeat sin. It's good enough uh, for Jesus. He, he used it, didn't he? When, when he was tempted by Satan, he used three scriptures to defeat him. So it's good enough for Jesus. It's good enough for you. It's good for evangelism. And 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and of fear. So if you want to give an answer, you want to be ready for that, you, you really need, um, in, in terms of evangelism, have scripture memorized. When I first started memorizing scripture, I used... Um, uh, Navigator's topical memory system. They're all online now at BibleMemory.com, and they're topical. Sometimes topical is helpful. Um, you can memorize them by the topic of live the new life, proclaim Christ, rely on God's resources, be Christ's disciple, grow in Christ's likeness. Twelve verses that kind of go with that. Used to have them in a little wallet-sized card, and now you can just print them out that size and go to the gym with my pastor friend, and we quiz each other uh, on the verses that we were memorizing while we uh, worked out. So it's a really good, good opportunity for you to memorize scripture, memorize with a purpose, understand the meaning for the application or memorizing topically. That's going to help to memorize scripture. Obviously, repetition is key on these things, isn't it? You don't want to just do it once. You want to keep it going. So whew, there we go. That, uh, that's just a few notes on how to know the Bible. Um, can I just let you, let me, let me end with just this wonderful quote um, that I, I wanted to read last week from uh, a book going through with the the elders speaking about the wonderful thing we have here called the Word of God. He, uh, he says, We have only one true, one safe, only happy attitude for man, namely hanging on in earnest dependence upon every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. We may well say there's nothing like it in all the world. It brings the soul into direct, living, personal contact with the Lord himself. It makes the Word so absolutely essential to us in everything we cannot do without it. There's not a single crisis occurring in the entire history of the church of God, not a single difficulty in the entire path of any individual believer from beginning to end, which has not been perfectly provided for in the Bible. We have all we want in that blessed volume, and hence we should ever be seeking to make ourselves more and more acquainted with what that volume contains so as to be thoroughly furnished for whatever may arise without it being a temptation, or whether it be a temptation of the devil or an allurement of the world or a lust of the flesh, or on the other hand, for equipment for that path of good works which God has afore prepared that we should walk in it. And it never fails those who simply cleave to it and confide in it. We may trust Scripture without a single shade of misgiving. Go to it when we will. We will always find what we want. A few sentences of Holy Scripture will pour in a flood of divine light upon the heart and conscience and set us at perfect rest, answering every question, solving every difficulty, removing every doubt, chasing away every cloud, giving us to know the mind of God, putting an end to conflicting opinions by the one divine competent authority. What a boon, therefore, is Holy Scripture. We have an amazing thing in the Word of God. Amen? Amen? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this time. I thank you for the patience of your people. I know we had a long go there. and Lord, it is so important uh, for, for us to know how to know your Word. Lord, on the one hand, we do have your Spirit that can guide us and direct us into truth. And yet, Lord, there's so many practical, um, practical things that can help us to really understand fully and to not fall into... Um, Lord, wrong interpretations. Lord, I pray that you'd um, use this to encourage your people, Lord, and 
speak to them at where they're at specifically, Lord. For some, uh, they're, this is the, they're, they're already accomplished at these things, and, and some are just starting out. I just pray, Lord, that no one would be overwhelmed. They just start where they're at and take small steps. The key is that we just need to be in your word. You've spoken. You've revealed yourself to man, and we want to know you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.